We'll turn to Matthew. We'll be in the end of chapter 14 and, and then into chapter 15 today. Beginning at Matthew 14 and verse 34, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Of course, when they crossed over, they were coming from the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee from feeding the 5,000. And they spent the night in the boat. The boat was immediately on shore when Jesus stepped into the boat, the sea was calm, the boat was immediately on the other shore, and this is the shoreline where they landed. It was where the land of Gennesaret is, and that's a, a region of, of land. There is a city called Gennesaret, it's, it's south of Capernaum, it's a stretch of land that's about four miles long, two miles wide, so it was a region, there were villages that occupied various amounts of people. When the men of that place recognized him, he was recognizable. He'd already been spending, he'd already been engaged in ministry for quite some time. We're entering here into the last year of Jesus' life, moving up, moving toward the cross. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Then, so immediately it's in the context of Jesus being there, doing what he's doing. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, almost ignoring them, he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profits you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, and their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of Men. Now, we could keep on reading because Jesus is continuing his answer in verses 10 through 20. We'll stop there, save that for next week, the Lord willing. But he really gets to the heart of the issue in verses 10 through 20. And the passage that we're dealing with today is it's not a side issue 
per se, but it isn't the heart of where Jesus is going with his answer. And he doesn't really answer the question that they're asking about the hand washing and the defilement until he gets to verse 20, uh, excuse me, verses 10 through 20. But we'll pick that up, Lord willing, next week. Now, sometimes we don't know why the gospel writer is led to record what he does in the order that he does it. And sometimes we spin our wheels trying to make sense of the chronology of the scriptures. And sometimes it's a futile exercise and maybe we come up with ideas that God never intended for us to come up with. But because we believe the Holy Spirit is guiding the record and guiding the men who wrote these things, we we follow his path and we, we go where he leads us and we submit ourselves to what he says. And by the way, that's a huge point in this message that we're going to hear Jesus making. But between the record of Jesus and Peter walking on the stormy sea and Jesus being confronted by the scribes and Pharisees who come from Jerusalem that we read about in chapter 15, Matthew gives a summary report in verses 34 through 36. Now, this is one of several times that Matthew summarizes the healing ministry of Jesus. You'll find a a similar summary in chapter 4. Verses 23 and 24, I'll not go back and read them, but you'll find it in chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. You find it in chapter 9, verse 35. We're going to find it again in chapter 15, verses 29 and 30. A summary very similar to what we find here in verses 34 through 36. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out unto all into all that that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. And then he moves on. And I don't want to devote a complete message to repeating things that I've already said about the healing ministry of Jesus and why it is that it is emphasized by Matthew. and The other gospel writers emphasize it as well. But let me summarize a few thoughts here. And I'm going to I don't want to get bogged down here. So if anyone has questions that I don't answer, maybe you haven't heard things that have been said in previous messages. I invite you to come to me later and ask questions. But what is going on? What is Matthew doing? Why is he emphasizing this? Well, the first thing I would say is that it's clear that he is making known that Jesus is the Messiah promised by the Old Testament prophets. Never had such power been seen on such a large scale as was seen in Jesus' ministry. All who were sick, it says, as many as touched him. And just the hem of his garment. In other places we find Jesus touching people. They begged him, let us just touch the hem of your garment. And he didn't, he didn't resist that. These were untreatable infirmities. These weren't just people feeling bad. These were infirmities for which there was no remedy. In that day, there are such there are such infirmities that still exist today, but God has blessed the world with a great deal of remedies for the infirmities. 
that exist. But these were not partial or gradual healings. It wasn't let me lay my hand on you and you should start feeling better in a few days. This was immediate. Immediate. And they were complete. It says that they were made perfectly well. They didn't have to then go to a doctor or go to some other means in order to complete what Jesus began. It was completely done. It was immediately done. Now, hear this. Health and healing, in any case, is evidence of God's power. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Why did God create an immune system? And when your immune system operates as it's supposed to operate, that's an expression of the power of God at work in you, in your health, and in your healing. Do you know that you fight off far more than you realize? Your body fights off far more invasion than you will ever know every single day of your life. And that's an evidence of His power. You know, do you know how you are held together? It is by His power. It is by Him that we consist, that we are held together. But what's being viewed in the life of, in the life, the ministry of Jesus is healing of an extraordinary measure. It is when something happens for which there is no human explanation for it. And we've seen that, haven't we? And I, I got online and I, I looked up testimonies of, of people who had been cured of what was of what amazed the doctors, and the doctors had no explanation, and they're still trying to figure out how it happened, where, where some of those who, who were recipients of the healing acknowledged it was God. Not all do. You realize there are God-haters who actually experience miraculous healing. In fact, that's what was going on here. But just like his power over the winds and the waves demonstrated that he truly was the son of God. So his vast demonstrations of healing of the lame, the blind, the mute, the crippled and many other congenital infirmities proved to the world then and to us as we read the record of it, that that that's the Messiah. That's the Christ of God. We don't walk on water, do we? We don't bless the bread and, and fish and feed a whole community with it. Not like that. There's something being demonstrated here. And when we believe the record that God has given of His Son, we see Him for who He really is. And we bow before Him as the Christ of, of God. But this is also a demonstration of his compassion, not just his power, not just that he is the Messiah, that indeed he is, but he is a compassionate Messiah, compassionate God. And he shows this in relationship to the multitudes as he touched them in remarkable ways with healing. Not only touched them, but they touched him. 
going through crowds and almost as if just rubbing up against someone. Virtue went out of him. Not to everybody. In fact, not to most of the world that existed, the population that existed, but those that were around where he was. When the men of that place recognized him, he didn't hide himself, but he responded. He didn't refuse them. He indiscriminately healed as many as touched the hem of his garment. Perhaps the word got out that there was a lady, a woman who had an issue of blood, and she just touched the hem of his garment and she was cured. I don't know. But for some reason, they asked, they begged, just, can we just touch the hem? Of his garment. He permitted it. He didn't qualify them first. Only you for whom, only you of whom I approve can touch the hem of my garment. No, they had needs and he was willing to give. He didn't require faith first. He didn't require commitment. In fact, most of those who were healed, according to John's record, departed from him. They weren't true followers. They weren't true believers. But this is the compassion of God, the compassion that Jesus demonstrates. And I would say to you and me, may our hearts be affected by his compassion that we might imitate him in relation to the needs around us, not helping only those who measure up to our standard of thought of being deserving, but just because there is a need helping those around us. Compassion. But while we must not minimize the significance of his manifestation of compassion on the multitudes in their physical healing. And I'm tempted to repeat that statement. Let's not minimize it. Sometimes it seems to me like there are those who read about the healings of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and pass quickly over that. We cannot minimize. We should not minimize that. As I was telling folks downtown last night, God's sun was shining on the evil and the good, those who were thankful and those who didn't even acknowledge him. And his rain that fell last night didn't just just fall on my my yard. And the functioning of bodies, not just good people, righteous folks, bodies function well. But this was not their greatest need. Physical healing was not their greatest need. And physical healing is not the greatest need of the world. You see, they would still die. And then the judgment. And so to receive the blessing, the mercy, the common, the common, as we call it, common mercies of God. To, to receive the benevolence, that expression of love. To receive the blessing of physical healing and yet reject Jesus, the Savior of sinners. Which is what was going on when Jesus walked upon this earth and is still going on today. But to do so is to remain under the bondage of sin, which includes corruption and mortality of the body and in the end, eternal death. Oh, beloved, you know this is true. But if you don't know it, I say to you, and I, I trust that you will know that Jesus, in Jesus Christ, Somebody asked me last night, what is your hope? Because I was making a, a comment that, that those of you who are hopeless, come speak to us. And there was a man that came to me and said, what is your hope? 
And I'm saying to you that all believers have a living hope and we have a living hope of the complete healing of our bodies. We have a hope of a complete healing of our souls forever. But brethren, listen to me, in this life, in this life, there is no guarantee. There are liars called preachers who are saying that this is guaranteed. And they're doing more harm than good. They say that the cross guarantees your healing right now. Well, the cross guarantees your victory over sin, but do you still deal with it? The cross guarantees eternal life. That is, I'm talking about you will be raised from your mortal body will be raised to immortality. But will you die? Romans chapter 8 says because of sin in the, in this mortal body, you will die. This body's gonna die, but if Christ is in you, that same spirit which raised him from the dead will raise your mortal body from the dead. But that's not what we experience right now in this moment, in this life. That's the hope that we have. No sin, corruption, and mortality are part of this temporary life. Until glory. But that is a hope. And that's why it's called a living hope. And I was praying this morning in our prayer time that that might work within us, that living hope, so that we as a body of believers might really live our lives and express in our lives the living hope that we have. Not not trudge, just, just make it from day to day like... I know I can do it if I try hard enough, but a living hope that is based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fervent commitment called love that He has for us, that covenantal love which we heard about. But it is in Jesus' teaching, not His works, but His words, that we are confronted with our deepest need. That's why it's good to do good to all men. It's good to be kind and benevolent and compassionate. But if you never speak a word, if you never declare, if you never say anything, the world really doesn't know what the problem is. They don't know what the issue is. And so they have to be confronted with that. And Jesus is confronting His hearers here and us today who are reading this. He's confronting us. And so Matthew continues in chapter 15 with the words of Jesus. As He is manifesting His compassion and power, an entourage of religious traditionalists come from Jerusalem to investigate Him. And Mark tells us they came to find fault. They didn't like what they were hearing. Up there in the northern region of Galilee. Of course, Jesus had come down their way as well. But they were hearing what was going on up there. They didn't like it. He was gaining notoriety. And so they came to... They sent this entourage to try to shut him down. Then, the scribes and Pharisees. When this was happening, they saw what Jesus did. But they didn't see him. Just like... Many of those to whom it was done, they received the blessing of healing, but didn't see him. Just like those who were fed 
The 5,000 plus. They saw the miracle, but they didn't see Him. He was viewed as a threat to their system. They didn't see Him as the Messiah who, who came to fulfill the law. He said so Himself. But they saw Him as one who was at odds with their tradition. Which, as He will show, was at odds with God's law. And that's a problem. And he points this problem out before he goes into teaching where the real problem exists. So Jesus seizes this opportunity to address what really matters in relation to God. And in summary, it is this, his word over man's tradition, his word, his word over man's tradition. So let's follow the narrative here and seek to hear what the Spirit is saying to us. First, Jesus is questioned in verses 1 and 2. They came. Verse 2, why? The question, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. The inquisitors were the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem. Somebody One of the young men in our church sent me a note, I think it was last week, and said, uh, asked for some definitions of terms, and one of them was Pharisees and scribes, or two of them, Pharisees and scribes. Well, here you have the, excuse me, Pharisees and Sadducees. Here you have the Pharisees, and the scribes are joined with them, because scribes were primarily Pharisees. They were sent from the religious headquarters in Jerusalem of this group of people. The scribes were primarily Pharisees who developed regulations for Jewish, religious, and practical life. God's law was not enough. Now, they wouldn't have said that per se, but they wrote commentaries on God's law. They came up with, they extended the laws of of God. They wrote, this is what God really said, this is what God really meant, sort of an approach. And the Pharisees dedicated their lives to keeping and enforcing these endless regulations that the scribes came up with. Religion to them consisted of doing and not doing, including finding loopholes. For them, righteousness before God was earned by works of the law. Now that in summary is the Pharisees and the scribes who were part of them. These men followed in the tradition of the elders. Now, what what are the traditions of the elders? They said, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. And these were precepts and rituals that were passed down orally from Moses Interpretation, commentary, and application of the written law of Moses. Jesus calls these traditions or commandments of men, as he'll refer to it in verse 9. They were eventually compiled in 200 A.D. into what was known as the Mishnah. You may have heard of that. Um, The Mishnah. And it comes in volumes. And I'm not even going to, I mean, you know, I could take time to go into all of that. You can look it up on the Internet and read it for yourself if you're interested in knowing more about the Mishnah. But here's one summary statement of these traditions. The words of the scribes are lovely, 
beyond the words of the law. For the words of the law are weighty and light, but the words of the scribes are all weighty. And so you understand the mindset of these men to whom Jesus is speaking. They leaned upon the tradition of the elders. That was their ultimate authority. They may not have said that, but in practice, that's exactly what was going on. They leaned upon the writings of men, not the word of God. These fault finders noticed that Jesus' disciples violated one of these traditions. And so they pointed out, and it sounds funny to us, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. What a violation, huh? I mean, we, we, we read that and we think, it's, it's comical. What do you mean? They, they did, but that was a big deal to them. Because you see, it wasn't just a matter of hygiene. I mean, there would be less disease and sickness if people washed their hands before they eat. They eat, right? We, 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 we see the, the significance of washing your hands before you eat. But that's not what's going on here. This had to do with their concept of purity, cleanliness, ceremonially. And this particular tradition was developed from a reference in Leviticus 15.11. I'll not turn there and read it. But in Leviticus 15.11, there's a reference to the rinsing of hands in the context of bodily discharge. And if you hadn't rinsed your hands in the context of bodily discharge, there was an uncleanness. And it was a ceremonial uncleanness, not just a hygienic uncleanness. And of course, there were ceremonial washings under the law, weren't there? And especially with the priest, but not so much with the common uh, individual Jew, it was more in relationship to the priests as they prepared themselves to go uh, to make sacrifices and come into the into the tabernacle or to the temple, into the holy place, into the holy of holies. And there were washings and all of that was typical of cleansing that was necessary, moral cleansing that was necessary before a holy God. But true to sinful human nature that gravitates to legalism, religious leaders then, and they still do it, impose their additions on God's word, making laws that God never gave. Some say they were fencing the law with their own laws. Some say that they had such high regard for the commandments of God, for the law of God, that they went beyond the law of God and made their own laws to protect that which God gave. May I suggest to you that God doesn't need anyone to protect what he gives What he gives is enough. We're always going to be in danger if we're adding to what God has given. However, that might be done. But their question had nothing to do with God's commandment or his word. J.C. Ryle points this out. I'll not quote him, but. He says that if, if, their, if their concern had been that the disciples had broken God's commandment, I mean, truly broken a commandment of God, they would, have, they would have had a legitimate reason to question Jesus. Your disciples are doing this or not doing that. But they weren't questioning God's commandment or his word. They were questioning the elders' interpretation and application, which had become equally authoritative, and I would suggest even more so, than the Bible. 
Let me just suggest here, and I don't want to get bogged down here, but tradition that has biblical authority, biblical authority is is not tradition of the elders. There is good tradition, but it is tradition that is based upon that which comes to us through from Jesus Christ through the apostles. Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. But this was apostolic. We call it apostolic tradition. I would call it tradition established under the authority of Christ through the apostles. The church is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And then you go over into chapter 3 of Second Thessalonians and verse 6, but we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So there is a tradition that comes to us, but it comes to us as we read it in that which has been recorded for us. Just like the traditions of Moses that were truly the traditions the things that God gave, were to be practiced by the people of God. But they accused Jesus' disciples, and by implication, Him, of violating the tradition of the elders. And they pull out a technicality formulated by the tradition. And isn't it interesting that Jesus Jesus concedes? He, He... He concedes this way in verse 3. And he answered and said to them, Why do you... What's the next word? Why do you also? Uh, What's he saying? He's saying, yeah, we do. We do violate the tradition of the elders. We sure do. But I want to ask you, why do you? He turns the table on them. He doesn't deny their charge He just turns the table with a question, which is what Jesus did more than once. And he asks his own question in verses three through six. Why do you also transgress, violate the commandment of God because of your tradition? And Jesus is not just speaking needlessly here. He's challenging them. For God commanded and he gets specific Just as they got specific with one of the traditions of the elders, Jesus gets specific with the commandments of God, and he brings one forward. For God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother. And that's in Genesis 20, or excuse me, Exodus 20. And then you go over to Exodus 21, and here's an elaboration on the commandment. He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. And so Jesus is essentially exposing their hypocrisy. In essence, he's saying to them, you claim to be worshipers of God. They probably would have even said they love God. 
And yet you violate the very commandment of God because of your tradition. You have found a way around God's will clearly revealed in His Word. You found a way around honoring your parents, which, it's interesting, includes supporting your parents and older parents and those who are doing so. You're doing what God would expect you to do. In fact, you can find it in Paul's letter to Timothy, the first Timothy. I mean, he that does not provide for his own house is worse than an infidel. It, it is, this is a, this is a principle that flows through the scriptures, caring for, honoring your parents includes caring for them in their need. What does God say? God says honor. Your father and your mother. That's what God, the lawgiver, this is what he says. Honor your father and your mother. That's that's not a that's not some sort of mean spirited God thing. That's a good thing. That's an expression of love, really. That that I mean, love is the fulfillment of the law, God's law, right? I mean it's God's, it's not ours, it's God's. Honor your father and your mother. And then the, and then the condemnation of the law. He who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Thankfully, if you're in Christ, you're not under the condemnation, not under the law in that sense. I mean, we could talk about other senses in which we're not under it, but you, we know we're not under the law in that sense. Because God in love bore that curse, didn't He? We're gonna rejoice in that tonight. But you see, when God says something, there's no wiggle room. God is clear. And it's just interesting to me, to, and, and I note this because I think it's important. And it may be more important than even what I'll state in this message, but Jesus' authority is the written word. God says, and over in Mark, he actually says when he's referring to Isaiah's quote, he says, as it is written. In other words, it's not the oral tradition. It's not what you've heard passed down from generation to generation. It's that which has been written, that which came from God. And angels were part of that, by the way, that's a whole nother concept. But but came from God through Moses to the people and it was written down, it was encoded. That's God's word. But you say, verse five, but you say. What do you say? Well, they had come up with this tradition that if for whatever reason they did not want to follow through with the proper care of their aging parents, let's say, they were able to excuse themselves. You might say, why would anybody not want to take care of their aging parents? I don't know. Maybe bitterness. There may be. There may be other reasons. There may, there may be greed. I don't want to share. I mean, they should have provided for themselves. They should have, you know, put away the 401k like I'm doing, you know. They can just suffer. I'm not sharing. Or, or maybe it was even, it was more religious than that. You know, we want to, we have vowed to give to the temple. That probably is more likely what was going on. We have vowed to give 
to the temple. And by the way, you can read about it in the writings. You can make this vow and there was a way to avoid honoring your father and your mother by giving. But you could actually there were ways around actually following through and giving that money to the temple so that you could keep it for yourself. This is crazy. This is the way that religious traditionalists operated and still sometimes do. And so what did they do? They. It says. You say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me, I, I would have given it to you. But Doron, Doron is the Greek here for gift uh, translations. You can see a bunch of crooked letters in your KJV or NKJV because they're just they're just adding some thoughts here. But really a gift, whatever profit you might have received from me, Doron, which means a gift. You remember the word that Mark uses? Corban, that's the one we mostly know. This is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Corban. Corban is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Corban. I'm giving you way too much information here, aren't I? But this is where it comes from. And so, and so you would say, Doron. And the parents would just have to shut down. Well, I can't. I don't expect anything from you. A Corban. And you feel real good about yourself because you're being religious. You're not just avoiding honoring your father and mother, or so you think. You're actually honoring God above your father and your mother. I love God so much. I love God more than anything else. Corban. Doran. And yet, and yet Jesus said that it's easy to say those things and love him whom you do not see. Or at least say you do. But if you don't love the one you do see, thou shalt love thy neighbor. The lesser commandments as we might think of them, certainly these Jewish traditionalists did. The lesser commandments, the commandments that had to do with you and me and relationships you and me. And so we, we go through this procedure of worship of God while exempting ourselves from something that God has clearly said is His will. So whatever the motive, Jesus says you have made the commandment of God of no effect. When Jesus says this in verse 6, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Some of you may have in your margins the word word or even in your translation the word word. That's exactly how Mark translates it. It's the word word. Uh, Thus you have made the word of God of no effect by your by your tradition. And that's the idea. It's not just a commandment or the commandments. It's the very word of God that you have made of no effect. You've invalidated. You've stripped it of its authority on account of your tradition or by your tradition. On account of your tradition, you have overridden the very clear expression of God's will in his word. So man's word trumps God's. Now, for you and me, we might let me just throw this thought out at you, because here, as Jesus is speaking these things and Matthew's writing about this time before the cross, they were still under the law in this way. But for you and me, there are Old Testament commands that have changed. They've changed since the Reformation, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Let me read it to you in Hebrews chapter nine, beginning at verse six. I'll read through verse 10. Now, when these things had been thus prepared. And this is important. 
Because if you don't get this, what you're going to end up doing is you're going to be going back to the Old Testament, to the very Word of God, and you're going to gather yourself stones, and you're going to go stone the adulterer. You're going to go, you're going to go, because that's what God said do, right? That's the Word of God. And the fact of the matter is, you can't change that. You don't have a right to change that. Now, when these things, or you're going to read of all the ceremonies that practiced in the Old Testament, you're going to say, we've got to do that too. We don't have enough trinkets in our building. We don't have enough statues. We don't have stained glass windows. We don't have steeples. We don't have all the stuff. We've got to have more stuff. I don't have a robe on. I do have a tie on. I'm certainly better than most of you. But see, that's a, that's a religious traditionalist talking. You see, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. This was worship. It was worship as God ordained it. For that age, under that covenant. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Have you committed any sins in ignorance today? (laughs) I'm afraid I may have committed sins not so ignorantly. I need a covering. I, I, I need cleansing. They did. The Holy Spirit, by way of all of that, Indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Where's where's the holiest place of all? It's not that tabernacle. It's not that temple. It's the very presence of God Himself. That temple made without hands. It was symbolic for the present time. In which gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, wash your hands. And fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. I repeat what I said earlier, only God has the right to make such changes. And He has made them. And if God, if God has not altered a command, no religious group has the right to do so. But where God has altered and He has altered some things, it is our obligation to yield to Him, to submit to Him. This is part of our worship of Him where His Word guides us. And so Jesus brings this indictment in verses 7 through 9. He says, hypocrites. Hypocrites. He's he's exposed them and now he indicts them. Hypocrites. Is it ever right to say to somebody, hypocrites? Well, we're not Jesus. We don't see the hearts. It's more difficult for us to do that. But we can proclaim the truth and trust the Holy Spirit to make the application. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart, their heart, their heart's a heart issue. Their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Hypocrites. They made a show of devotion to God, but their devotion to the commandments of men over God revealed their hearts. And Jesus has exposed that. 
before he now indicts them. Their religious formality was not all wrong on the surface. Just like some of our formalities are not all wrong on the surface. But their allegiance was to traditions developed by men over the written Word of God. Beloved, this happens far more than you and I may realize. Hopefully it doesn't happen with us. But Jesus appeals to what was written by Isaiah and says that Isaiah, notice how he says this, Isaiah was talking about you. Was Isaiah talking to those of his day? Sure he was. But he says, I know, Jesus says Isaiah was talking about you. He was prophesying about you when he said what he said. Draw near to me. You draw near to me with your mouth. There's prayers, there's chants, there's ceremonies, there's all this religious stuff that you're doing and you speak words of honor to God and it's, and it's voluminous and it sounds so good so far as it goes. But Jesus said, Isaiah said, their heart is far from me. Jesus is saying to this crowd, your heart is far from your heart. And what was the evidence that their heart was far from God? Well, they said one thing and did another. They said one thing and did another. In Isaiah's day, and you can go read the record, they worshipped. Oh, they worshipped. They went through the procedures of worship on holy days with holy things. Doing the holy stuff outwardly. But along with that, they lived unholy lives and they were accused by God of being idolatrous. In Jesus' day, they said they honored God, but they found ways to lay aside His clear command in His Word. And Jesus said, you're exposed. You're exposed for who you really are here. Say what you will. Say what you will. This thing with them, it was in vain they worshipped me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, bringing forward as authoritative and even seeing those traditions in such a light that they excuse you from doing the very thing that God has clearly said pleases Him. This is what He desires of us. When God's Word is replaced or added to with man's tradition and commandments, it amounts to vain worship. When God's Word... Listen, we can't just use God's Word to reach our conclusions, to promote whatever it is we're thinking. That's what they were doing. They were, they were actually laying aside some clear, clear teaching of God's Word. Clouding the picture by their commentary. And brethren, that's a problem. When God's Word is replaced or added to with man's tradition and man's commandments, it amounts to, Jesus said, vain worship. Vain worship. Because you see, God is not the center of the heart's attention. It's a hard issue. And that's what Jesus is calling them to. 
The heart is not surrendered to God. There's no submission and true love for Him. That's what happens when the heart has been transformed. And he says such worship is vain, it's futile, it's fruitless. Paul was awakened to the futility of his worship when he was brought to Christ. He talks about it over in Galatians. He talks about it in more places than one, really. But in Galatians chapter 1, he said this, verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man. Now, Paul was one of those who wrote some fundamental changes, didn't he? From, from what we read in the, the Mosaic, the Old Covenant Law. I mean, Paul was fundamental. And some of the things he wrote just seems to, seems to diametrically oppose. He said circumcision is nothing. That wouldn't work in the Old Covenant, would it? But it does now. Paul said that. But he didn't get that from himself. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it from man, is the implication. But it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And by the way, whatever truth comes to us comes by way of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's what he has made known and the apostles were the instruments that wrote these things down and it is revealed to us. It's made known to us. It's it's unlocked to our minds and our hearts as we read it. And there is that. Perpetual pursuit, as John said in the last hour, there is that there's and I really appreciate appreciated that point. Paul is not writing the way he's writing to scare you away, but to draw you in. But it's not drawing you in to just definitions of things. It's drawing you in to truly to see in a deeper way what Jesus is going to reveal to you by the Spirit. He says, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. There it is. That's the traditions of the elders. That's what I was zealous for. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace to reveal His Son in me, everything changed. And He began to preach in a whole whole different way. To defend a, a whole different message, really. Promote a whole new, fresh idea. By the way, love the Lord your God, love one another is not new in the sense it was never said before. But it's altogether fresh when you come to the New Testament, when you come to Christ, the manifestation of that and the spirit applying that and working that out in our lives in ways that. That are fundamentally, you know, as they say, different, there's definitely a similarity, but it's expanded upon in this new covenant age. And Paul came to see that the law 
and especially the traditions of men, stood in the way of acceptance with God. Philippians chapter 3 says, He shucked it all. That's what he says. That was all once very profitable. I saw it to be very profitable, but now I don't want any of it. Now, he was he didn't say, I want to be lawless. He says, I don't want any. I want Christ. And if I have Christ, the rest will follow. His heart was changed and he became a true worshiper of God through Jesus Christ. So he didn't say one thing and do another. And when he did do that, who doesn't do that at times, right? There is forgiveness. We bring our hearts back to where they ought to be. Well, how do, how do Jesus' words apply to us today? And I, I, my time is up and I, I, I could go on and on. We could make a huge list here, but these are a few things that came to my mind. It is still hypocritical and vain worship to essentially reject God's Word, any of it, in favor of religious tradition while speaking of being spiritual and worshiping God. There's a lot of folks in our generation that talk about being spiritual. And if you listen to them, you think, wow, they, they must be worshipers of God. But then you take them to the Word of God. And they see what God says. And immediately there's an objection. You see, a heart far from God pursues his own thoughts. That's spirituality. Pursues his own desires. This is what I want. This is what I desire. And they're devoted to traditions of men over the commandment or the word of God, even religious traditions. And this is seen in many ways, either imposing religious structure that goes beyond Scripture. We have to be careful here. Or interpreting Scripture in ways that really make it, as Jesus says, of no effect. You make the commandment of God or the word of God of no effect by your tradition. Doesn't matter what God says. How many ways are there to be accepted into favor with God? How many ways are there to be accepted into favor with God? How many ways are there? Is that what you're hearing among the religions of the world? If you do any engaging with people out there, it is an absolute offense, right, Aaron? An absolute offense when you, when you say, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And Jesus said, come unto me. I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, no man, no man comes to the Father except by me. That's not a word of condemnation. You say, yes, you are. You're condemning all the other religions of the world. And it does sound that way, doesn't it? It feels that way. You can't avoid sounding condemning to a world who rejects the word of God. I don't care how many times you use kind and gracious and loving words. If you're being faithful to the Word of God, people will not like it. Even though you're holding out the only hope that they have. In truth, you're doing that. And in love, you're doing, hopefully in love, you're doing that. I sometimes hear preachers, and I've been guilty of it myself, where I've probably preached at least sounding like I was more angry with everybody than I was caring for them. You say, preacher, you're sounding like that this morning. I, I, I hope not. I, I don't want to sound like that. 
church tradition is not the authority for our worship. Why would I say that? Well, I think some of you know because some of you have been saved out of church tradition. Does true worship require relics and buildings and certain dress and on and on? No, no, it doesn't. And, and those organizations, it doesn't matter whether it's Catholic or whether it's Protestant, who demand certain things physically be in place before we can actually worship. That is not true in this new covenant age. Was it true in the old covenant? It absolutely was. But the temple has come. The tabernacle is fulfilled. Right? Jesus Christ is the center of our worship. Beloved, we can do that whether we have a nice air-conditioned room and padded seats and Dressed up like this, and I'm not against any of those things, but we could have met this morning in somebody's home. We could have met under the old oak tree back here. Well, my oak tree is nicer than this one, so we'd meet under my old oak tree back there. Whatever, you know. But you get the point. It's, that's not worship. It's not worship. The traditions of men. And we are inundated with this kind of idea. And it's been going on for 2,000 years, longer than that actually, but since the cross, 2,000 years. How many churches, churches in our day interpret God's love and love one another in such a way as to lay aside God's clear definition of gender and marriage? And so you have rainbows on the doors of churches, churches. I'm not. I love rainbows. If you understand a rainbow biblically. My, my, there's so much truth in that, but they've stolen that from us. And that is not worship. Whoever, whatever they are worshiping, it is not God. And again, I'm not. I, I. There is a righteous anger that, you know, there's an anger that's right. But but many of these folks in our culture are simply deceived. But these are not churches. Those who are saying they're worshiping God. It is hypocritical to say you worship God and follow a religious tradition that approves of same-sex unions. Somebody asked me, why don't I I talk about these things more uh, than I do? And I said to him, well, we already know these things. But I'm afraid that there's, there's such an influence in our culture right now that even some adults are being swayed or being wooed. And this is why it's, it is, it is important how we process the whole, the whole reality of the glory and the beauty of God in His love. It's, it's so important because there are those who will hear that language and say, I'm included. That's why it is important to, to give the full record of Scripture. The, the wrath of God abides upon those who are outside of Jesus Christ. And by the way, let's not become guilty of going down and protesting LBGTQ. What we need to, what we need to do is proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Aaron, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, I'm not opposed to you saying some of the things you say down there. I heard him speaking last night. 
It's pointing out the sins of the culture. But I can tell you what, if our goal is to deliver somebody from an LGBTQ community or any other community like that, if that's our goal in our ministry, we have missed the gospel. And we're, in my opinion, about as bad as they are. That's not what we should be about. What we should be about is heart changes. We want people, because I'm going to tell you something, if a heart is changed, all the other stuff will follow. It really will. We'll say more about that next week. What about women preachers? We're talking about worship here. Would there be a problem if I had this morning, if I had scheduled one of the women in our church, who, by the way, are probably as capable as I am of speaking truth, Capable as I am of processing truth. Would I have been right in asking one of them to come up here and deliver the morning message? Here's what I would say to that. What I would be saying is, I'm worshiping God with my lips, but my heart is far from Him. Why would I say that? Because He has something specific to say about that, doesn't He? And I'm saying, I'm going to choose the traditions of men who have been offended by that word. So much so that I was reading on a, on a Baptist page recently, just this last week. And this man was saying to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. You go read it if you don't know what it says. It talks about women not usurping authority over a man, not teaching, right? He says, he says, you can't read that. He said, the word of God is living. And you can't stay stuck in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. God's Word has evolved beyond that. So that we don't have to be bound by the Word. Can't you hear that's what's going on here? You want to be bound by honor, your father and your mother. Now, if there has been another word where Jesus lifts that and says, no, women should lead their husbands. Women should, then fine. But what does the Apostle Paul, where does he anchor his teaching there in 1 Timothy chapter 2? He anchors it in the Word of God. Genesis, actually. goes all the way back to the beginning. He said, this is the way God ordained it to be. So that has to be good because God, who is love and good, would not ordain something that's bad. We are the problem. I say we. The culture is the problem. Their heart is far from me. Well, you can add to this. But if your heart is truly toward God in Christ, you know what? You're going to hear Him. And you're going to follow Him. And I'm going to do the same. And I'm not going to try to work around what He, what he says. And listen, we don't want to be Baptist traditionalists. Following our traditions is not true worship. True worship submits heart and soul to the God who reveals Himself in, Christ, in Jesus Christ. We listen to Him. And that's why when I hear somebody talking about who God is, it's very important to me. Because my soul is coming before this God who's being lifted up. And that's what I desire. And that's what I desire for you is to come before this God in true worship. Our hearts bowing before Him. Engaging with Him and receiving from Him all that He has for us. And He says so many things to us. Let us draw near to God in spirit and truth. In spirit and truth. Through Jesus Christ. And let us honor Him as we respond to all that He speaks to us through His Word. If that is done, whatever else there is, there will be fruitful worship. God will be honored in the worship and we will be affected. We will be changed. And that is what ought to be happening 
as we are worshiping. Not sidestepping God, not sidestepping His Word, but getting coming in line. All else is vain religion.